0: Well, we continue on in the uh, book of Romans, and we're looking at uh, now the chapters 9 through 11. Very interesting portion of Scripture, because we, we kind of finished through chapter 8, <clears throat> gave us all this good news, and then we hit chapters 9 through 11. We're going, whoa, okay, you know, what is he talking about? What's Paul doing? And we're going to find out here in a moment. No, we'll have this unfolded before us. Because then you go into chapter 12, and you see all these verses about how to live as a Christian and, and the different things that we should be doing. So in light of no condemnation and living for Christ, this is how you should live. But now that we have these, ver- these chapters right in between this, and these chapters 9 through 11 are pretty important, actually, gives us perspective on things of who God is. And also, too, just kind of background of the Jewish people, uh, God's chosen ones, as well as the Gentiles, and where everyone's going to wind up, what's going to happen with everyone. You know, some who have so much share so little with others. I found this out with a friend of mine when I was in grade school. We collected sports trading cards. We did baseball, basketball, football, didn't do hockey not as much, but we did all these different sports, and and uh, we would collect them. He would come with his big old grocery uh, brown bag, of, uh, paper bag, grocery full of, of, of cards, not organized in any way, but he'd bring them on over my house, and we would look at look through them and all, and I didn't have very many at that time, and I thought, surely you could Spare some of those, because you know, he had uh, duplicates of all these other you know, Tony Dorsett's and, and Roger Staubach. So He he had uh, he, he was a Dallas Cowboy fan, and so he enjoyed that quite a bit. And so I wasn't too keen on those things. I was looking for Miami Dolphin stuff, because I was <laughs> Bob Greasy and all that stuff. But anyway, old names. He had a ton of things, and so I thought, surely you could spare one of those four cards that are the same kind. But no, of course not. And so we had a trade. He would give me one if I gave him a couple of the others I had that he needed. So I thought, oh, okay, whatever. So th- that stuff went on in childhood when in, in great times, though, to be able to enjoy that together. But the ancient Jews had so much. God had blessed them with adoption and glory, covenants, the law, true worship, and His promises. And He intended for them to share the knowledge of Him and His ways with the Gentiles. But instead of sharing, they hoarded and exhibited racial pride and a, and a smugness. In His wisdom and goodness, though, God included the Gentiles in His plan of salvation. The Apostle Paul made it very clear that His people, the Jews, had many God-given advantages, advantages over, the, over the Gentiles. But all those advantages did not equate to the salvation God had provided. The Gentiles without the law needed to accept God's provision by faith to be saved, just like the Jews. glorious news is that from Romans 10, verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. God promised salvation to Abraham and his descendants. Yet that promise had not been fulfilled. You kind of wonder, had God failed in keeping His promise? God is the sovereign creator and ruler of the universe, so does He arbitrarily determine who will be saved and who will not? Was, has God enacted such a sentence on the Jews so that those who are not saved have no responsibility? Or is God free to require certain conditions for His promise to be fulfilled? whether it pertains to the Jews or to the Gentiles. These questions and, and a number of other questions that we're going to be looking at in these uh, three chapters uh, unfold for us some answers and be able to guide us in these, these chapters that we're going to be looking at. Now, if anyone is troubled with God's selection of some to be preferred over others, as is the case of Jacob and Esau, the, the younger over the older, a better question to ask is, why does God select any of us for His service? Why? Why? So let's find some answers to the following questions found in today's portion of Scripture and hopefully help us appreciate all the spiritual blessings. We can be thankful for these blessings and be more committed to share the plan of salvation with others. When we know that we are blessed, when we know how much we've been forgiven, then that can be turned around and shown to other people what this is all about, what God has done for us. Let's look at chapter 9. We're going to kind of skip through some verses here. We're not going to take all the verses of these three chapters. Don't worry. I, I got to leave here before noon. But uh, we, we're going to take a look at these three chapters, and uh, let's look at the first five verses of chapter 9, Romans 9, starting with verse 1. And here... We, we look at the question of why does Paul care? <laughs> why does Paul care at all? Follow with me in verses 1-5. Verse one, one through five. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I, my, that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship, theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised, amen." Let's stop there in verse 5, so one of the saddest experiences a believer sometimes faces is to know that loved ones have turned down countless opportunities to follow Christ. You probably have people in your life like that. And you think, man, what you, would you just get a, get a, get a sense of, of urgency here and, and know that God loves you and that you're facing eternity without God? You just want to take them and shake them until they receive Christ as Savior. But it's the saddest experience because the answer is right there and they don't want to grasp onto it. Here we see Paul's intense love for his people. He knew the message he brought was difficult for Jewish ears. In this portion of Scripture, Paul revealed his deep love for the Jews, which resulted in Paul's, as he said, great sorrow and an un- unceasing anguish for his brothers, the people of Israel. Paul gave his life to be the apostle to the Gentiles, but he, he was called to remain a Jew. So, the Jews could have an example of how to be Jewish in the era of the Christ. In verse 3, Paul made clear that he still considered himself a Jew, and his love for the Gentiles in no way diminished his heart for his people. He carried a, a constant anguish. In fact, this anguish was, was very similar to the anguish Moses had when the people made that golden calf. In Exodus chapter 32, verse 32, Moses. Asked God to blot his name from the book of life on behalf of the people. So when Paul said in Romans chapter 9, verse 3, that if such a thing were possible, he would ask to be cut off from Christ for the sake of his fellow Jews. He was saying that that his commitment to the Jewish people was no less than that of Moses. And because Paul was a Jew according to the flesh, nothing could ever change his status. He could never be anything but a Jew, and if he was anti-Jewish, he also condemned himself. The name Israel that's used in verse 4 is also pretty significant, The meaning one who wrestles with God. In some ways, the Jews' struggle against Jesus being the Messiah is typical of their nature. So Paul is trying to tell us that all we must remember that the Jews wrestled with the promises and, na- and nature of God for generations. This has been going on. They wrestle with this. It was their mode of operation. It's how they rolled. And even so, along with that wrestling comes adoption and glory, covenants, the law, true worship, and God's promises. It is as if to say that engaging God in an honest fashion causes unrest, but that unrest is quieted by the same divine nature that causes it. Sure, we, we come before God, questioning Him honestly, what are you doing? What, what are you doing in my life? How come these things are happening? Where are you guiding my How How are we going down this path? And as you question God honestly, and there's some unrest going on because of all that, that that same unrest is quieted by that God that you are questioning. He's giving you that quietness during that unrest. Theology is not a neat, clear-cut exercise. (laughs) We may begin to speak about God, but we may never have the last word. In fact, our words may become confusing and even contradictory. But among all the confusion, God will reveal Himself so that we may know the truth about what we speak, and we may know that our knowledge comes from God's self-revelation and not from our ability to discover Him. So it is only fitting that the Messiah should come from the line of people who spent their entire existence in a struggle with God. In more than a list, these verses present us with a truth that we must wrestle with if we are to know God's revelation. In spite of the many advantages the Jews had, they, they failed to accept Christ as Messiah and Savior. And as a result, God had turned his primary selection of people for salvation to the Gentiles. And this can be seen in the argument advanced by Paul in verses 6 through 13, we're not going to look at today, as well as v- verses 15 through 29, where he used Jacob and Esau, as well as the children of Hosea, as examples of God's holy purposes. We probably all know family and friends or neighbors who have rejected the call of Christ on their lives. It's possibly because of their neglect or procrastination. I've I, I got other things to do. I, I can't deal with that right now. I, I've got to take care of my life. I've got to take care of my family. I've got a job to work. I'm busy. I, I can do it later and later and later. There's probably people that we know of as well, too, that have had bad examples by those who claim to be Christians, and so they reject the call of Christ. They let us know, oh, man, my neighbor says he's a Christian, but he goes out and does all these other things, and I don't think God would be too happy about it. So why do I need to receive Christ as my Savior when it doesn't make any difference to my neighbor? Maybe there's also unbelief or doubt. They don't believe that God sent His only Son to us as a sacrifice for our sins. Wouldn't believe that there'd be such a thing as a virgin birth. Wouldn't believe that there'd be such a thing as resurrection. Unbelief. Unbelief and we have a deep emotional bond to these people and that affects our relationship with them and we have a struggle we care for them we love them and we want them to know the truth there's a strange but simultaneous high degree of spiritual sorrow and spiritual joy because of the joy of the personal salvation that we've received that we experience while being deeply moved for the lost it's people around us that Are heading towards eternity without God. You've probably felt that mixture of sorrow and love. You're not alone. Sorrow and love were also mingled in Christ's sacrifice as well. So, why does Paul care? These are his people. These are his people that he intensely loves. Look with me in verse 14. Good question here Is God unjust? is God unjust? Look with me in verse 14, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? And his answer, (laughs) not at all, not at all. After citing the example of God's choice of Jacob over Esau in the previous verses, there's verses 6 through 13, Paul asked, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? And he was immediate with his answer, not at all. This was a strong term used by Paul 10 times in this letter, and also translated in other ways like let it not be, God forbid, not at all, certainly not, and by no means. The term is the exact opposite of the word amen. So this is like the "unamen." Although God's justice may, may be questioned, there is no ground whatever for Him to be unjust. As a sovereign creator God, His ways are far above ours to understand, as Isaiah Chapter 55, verses 9 through 11 tells us If God selects some, of, some for specific purposes and does not choose others, we must recognize his wisdom and grace above all human understanding. We need to get beyond the fact that, that we need, well, we need to realize that he is God and we are not. <laughs> all right? God is God. Yeah, these examples are given in God's word for His sovereign will to be exercised. You look at the life of Abel, the life of Seth, and Noah, Abraham, Moses, Samuel, as well as David, and of course Mary, and also Paul. Let me ask you: What are your feelings about God's purposes in your life? You look at those, you're going, hmm, (laughs) and you might question, "What is He doing?" Maybe a better question would be, do you know God's purpose for your life? That would probably be a better question to ask. How are you, and if you do know it, how are you fulfilling it? What are you doing? It takes the steps forward. And How do you hope to fulfill it more fully in the future? We can't just live our life as Christians in a vacuum. We need to get going and moving forward, and we need to make it, our lives affect others around us. And when that happens... We either encourage people or discourage people by how we react in our faith as God directs us and guides us. Is God unjust? No. He's God. <laughs> He's God. Look with me in verses 30 through 33, chapter, chapter 9 still. <clears throat> as you turn there, the question that will come up here is, why are some Gentiles saved while other Jews are not? What's going on here? So let's look here. Verses 30-33, through 33. What then shall we say, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith? But the people of Israel who pursue the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Let's stop there, verse 33. Yeah, Paul asked why the Jews were not saved, and then he gave a definite answer with a simple explanation with a biblical background. And The Jews were not saved because they pursued a law of righteousness, not by faith, but as if it were by works. The apostle cited Isaiah who clearly declared that a stone and a rock laid by the Lord in Zion would cause men to stumble, but the one who trusts in the Messiah will never be put to shame. On the other hand, Paul wrote the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. So Paul said that the law was meant to point people to faith. It was used that way. The law was never meant as a means of salvation. But as a means to faith. If anyone uh, thinks the path to salvation is paved with the law, that person will surely stumble and fall. We cannot please God on our own. We are inherently unrighteous. Our only hope is the grace of God, which is is obtained through faith. Far from being a means to salvation, obedience to the law is our response, to salvation. We are obedient because of what God has already done. That is exactly why the exodus from Egypt took place before the giving of the law. Instead of having it easier, the Gentiles had it more difficult because they did not have the law. They had no way to respond to God. They, they, they had no way to, to know God. The plain truth is this, found in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, That without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. There are a lot of things people stumble over in coming to faith in Christ. A lot of things. They might say, I'm already living a good life. Why do I need a Savior? Got a big house, got a great job, got plenty of toys. Why would I need a Savior? Some of them might say, it's not logical. Why, why would I need a Savior? Um, what is He saving me from? Uh, I, I'm doing fine. It's not logical that a Savior would die. It seems like a Savior would be victorious. Triumph. They might also say, well, I'm, I'm as good as my friend. I'm good as my brother or my sister or someone else. They compare themselves to other people. When actually the standard isn't other people. The standard is God's standard. (laughs) And that's where we measure ourselves from. A lot of people stumble over that rock coming to faith in Christ. And these stumbling stones can be overcome by prayer for faith. Help me, Lord, believe. Help my unbelief. By patience, and also through careful Bible teaching, too. Learning more about God's word helps you learn more about God and his will for your life. So, why are some Gentiles saved while other Jews are not? It's all about faith and where you place your trust for eternal life. It's important. Now, flip over to chapter 10, first three verses, Romans chapter 10. We're going to discover here the answer to the question why are human efforts not enough? Why can't I just do it on my own? Follow with me in verse 1. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Stop there in verse 3. Paul poured out his heart here. He says, "...hearts desire and prayer to God for His people. There are no others who have shown as much zeal," as, as he's described in verse 2, "...and persistence in holding to their laws and traditions as the Jews." They were zealous, zealous for that. But those laws had become only a hollow form. They had lost their meaning. Instead of faith and obedience, the Jews tried to establish their own righteousness." rather than submitting to God's righteousness. No matter how diligent a person is in living a life of honesty and integrity, unless it is based on knowledge of God's plan of salvation, there is no redemption of that person. You may know a whole bunch, but if you don't have the faith based upon God's plan of salvation, it means not much. Paul prayed for the salvation of Israel. He prayed that they would look to the law through new eyes eyes that had seen Jesus, the the great mistake, if you will, is seeing the law as an end in itself. The law does not declare itself the answer, but points to an answer outside of itself, outside of humanity. Zeal for the law is not bad. It's all right to hold to the rules. But it must lead to zeal for what the law is, a directional pointer That's what it is. (laughs) The law yearns for fulfillment, and it stretches toward the divine. Someone says it outruns humanity's grasp that humanity might reach beyond it and embrace the one who gives the law. So in itself, the law is unfulfilled, unsatisfied. And as hard as we may try, the law does not desire our fulfillment. It desires the personal revelation of God. It desires Jesus. When Jesus comes, the, the job of the law is done. There is no need for a portrait or description when the person drawn and described is present. And who is satisfied with a picture of a loved one? Not so much. The picture merely points us to the reality of the love we have in that relationship. And we've received many pictures of Maddie in her adventures in Africa. We love those pictures. Those are great. But there's no comparison to having her with us. We love to have her here. And on June 1st that's going to happen, Lord willing, we'll get her back and we'll be able to have her. And those pictures on Facebook and Instagram won't mean as much as being able to give her a hug and having her with us. So too with the law, it is a reflection of the reality of God, not the reality itself. When we worship the law as the righteousness of God, we cannot worship God for His own righteousness, for His own sake. Christ is the righteousness of God because He is God. We worship Christ as the fulfillment of the law, the one for whom the law was given, that He might be recognized when He came. Human effort is not enough. We can't do it on our own. We need the knowledge that is based upon God's plan of salvation. We need to submit to God's righteousness. Now look with me in in verses 12-15, through how can a person call on the Lord? Look with me, starting with verse 12. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all, and richly blesses all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news! Stop there, verse 15. The Scriptures are very clear. The invitation to salvation is universal. The Jews had plenty of opportunity to come to Christ, but persistently refused and neglected God's plan. In verse 12 it says, "...the same Lord is Lord of all, whether Jew or Gentile. There is no difference. The Apostle Paul instructed his people by one of their own prophets, Joel, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved." If the way seems closed for the Jew, it is not God who excluded the Jews. It was purely a matter of response. The same is true for those around us as well. It's a matter of response to God's truth. Paul recorded a clearly marked sequence of steps for salvation. If one must call upon the Lord, how can they call on anyone in whom they have not believed? How can they believe if they have not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching the truth? How can anyone preach if they are not sent? And then he drew upon Isaiah, fifty-two, verse seven, and he said, "Declare that even the feet of those who declare the the truth are beautiful." I don't know about you, maybe you uh, look at bare feet and you're going, "Ooh, I can't stand the look of bare feet." Sometimes they just, ugh. but since the feet are so delightful. A mouth, tongue, and lips must be even more beautiful as the good news is spread. You can have beautiful feet as you bring the good news to people. Because God is a person, He relates to us with a personal salvation. So we have evangelism, the bringing of good news that God created us in His image and cares about our battle against sin, and He wants us to be saved from sin and death. He has made that clear by choosing a a nation as an example. He saved them from the bondage and death of Egypt. He saved them from being swept into idolatry. He saved them so they could tell others of His saving power. No testimony is more effective than a first-hand account. God can save anyone. God can save everyone. He can save you. And the law can, can, can describe salvation, but it cannot tell of salvation. The law has never experienced salvation. Only people do. Only people can tell. We need to be ready to be those beautiful feet. And then finally, we look in chapter 11. Skip on over to verse 25. Romans 11, verses 25 through 27 Final question of will, will, will the Jews be saved then? Starting with verse 25, Romans 11. "'I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion, he will turn godlessness away from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins.'" We'll stop there verse 27. Paul made a statement of concern for his, his brothers. He did not want them to be ignorant and conceited because Israel had experienced a hardening until the full number of the Gentiles had come in. It was a mystery until God revealed it to believers. And the covenant God made to Abraham and repeated many times to Isaac and Jacob was irrevocable, something that was set in place. The Jews would have their day for acceptance of God's provision, but when Paul saw his own people reject the gospel message, he boldly told them that he would spend this time with the Gentiles, as he said in Acts chapter 13. The Gentiles, when Paul wrote, were the ones who were turning to Christ as Savior. But the Gentiles had no basis to conclude that they had a place of prominence over the Jewish people, over God's chosen people. The time would come when Israel as a whole would be turned from godlessness. This is the ultimate warning Gentile Christians. That means us. (laughs) We are all Gentiles, unless you are Jewish-born. Gentile Christians. They they can become just like the Jews who have rejected Jesus if they begin to feel superior to the Jews, even the non-Christian Jews. Whatever we may think of Jews who reject Jesus, we cannot dismiss the covenant God made with this nation." If the Jews have adoption through the promise of God, and God did not withhold Jesus from the cross, He will not withhold the Jews from condemnation if that means the salvation of the Gentiles. But just as He delivered Jesus from the condemnation of the cross through His resurrection, God will also deliver the Jews from their condemnation as well. Even death cannot negate the covenant of God. This is central to Christianity. It is the basis of our faith in our own salvation. It cannot be less true for the nation to whom the gospel was first given. God will deliver the Jews for His name's sake, not for the fulfillment of the law, but that His grace and mercy may once again be glorified throughout eternity. God will show mercy to whom He chooses. He shows no favoritism. Will the Jews be saved? They'll come a day come a day. With that, I want the worship team to come on up. They're going to lead us in a few songs. And as they do, let me just talk to you a little bit about some final things here. You know, sharing our faith is not only a must for Christians, but it should overflow naturally as we live our new life in Christ. We may not be comfortable discussing a theological basis for forgiveness. Uh, you know, or or maybe the transformed life and how it takes place, we may not have the theological background for all of that and be able to uh, articulate that. We may feel we lack knowledge of the Scripture to hold our own in discussions with others. We may be hesitant to speak because we don't want to sound skeptical to an unchurched, unbelieving listener. See, a life change is probably the most powerful testimony a person can give. Only you know the newness of spirit, only you know the newness of purpose and freedom God has provided in you. And that's what you share. What has God done for you? You might not have it all right with the words theologically, but you know what God has done for you. You're living it. You're that walking, living testimony. Let people know, let people see it, let people hear about it. This week, here's your assignment. This week, focus on someone who has not heard your story of coming to Christ. Do you know anybody in your life? Maybe they don't know how you came to Christ. They, they know you're a Christian. But how did you get there? Do they know that part? Do they know that there's a difference He has made in your life? Invite someone for a cup of coffee. Take them out to lunch, whatever it is. Visit someone who, who has not heard your story. Let them hear it. Talk to them about it. Talk to them about how Jesus has changed your life. And as you do, watch how God will work in their life and see how God will bring about salvation in their lives. We need to be ready. We need to be, be on, our, on our toes spiritually and, and taking advantage of those opportunities that come our way. So this week, look for those. Maybe be intentional about it by talking to someone personally what God has done for you. And don't be scared. You'll have some anxiety. Once you feel that, that, let that be a red flag to call upon God. (laughs) Give me the strength. Give me the words. Help me not to be nervous. Let me just be able to speak the truth in love to this person. And as you throw up those prayers to God, He'll bring down blessing and (coughs) guidance and the words to say. So be ready. I trust you'll be ready. We're going to sing a couple songs that will remind us of that as well and hopefully encourage you as you go on for this week.